This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Across the West, there's a growing movement toward reimagining the way meat is raised. There's a different story that many smaller ranchers are trying to tell, and it is about deep commitment to land and livestock, and it is not about growth at any cost. On today's show, we talk with the creator of a new podcast about women in agriculture. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. When you think about how meat is raised across the country, you may picture cramped feedlots on sprawling industrial livestock operations. It's no secret that there are many issues with the American industrial meat system, from environmental impacts to treatment of workers and the animals themselves. But across the West, women are reimagining the way we raise meat. This is the premise of Ashley Ahern's new podcast, Women's Work, from Boise State Public Radio. Ashley is an independent audio producer and storyteller who lives in rural north-central Washington. She spent months visiting women ranchers who are changing the ways we manage land and livestock. Ashley learned about their dreams and their daily challenges, from keeping cattle safe from wolves to establishing food sovereignty on native reservations. Ashley joins us now to talk about her podcast and how these innovative cowgirls are leading the regenerative ranching movement across the West. Ashley, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me back, Erin. I want to start by just playing a clip from the Women's Work trailer. Here's that. Hey, my name is Ashley Ahern, and I'm riding my mare, Pistol. Good girl. And uh, she and I are up in the mountains of the little valley I live in, north central Washington, helping a local rancher gather up his cows. And move them toward the exits. Come on, let's go. Let's go, let's go, ladies. I moved to this valley about three, four years ago now. And when I got here, I was a vegetarian. I had been covering the environment for NPR and member stations for more than a decade. And uh, as we know, cows, if they're not managed well, can be real bad for the environment. I mean, it's, you know, a handful of big corporations that handle the slaughtering and set the prices for beef and concentrate the wealth and don't treat the workers great. And so I was vegetarian. All right, come on, Mary, keep going. And then I moved to this remote valley and I, a woman uh, gave me my horse, Pistol, got her for free, which is sort of like a free puppy, um, not a free beer. <laughs> and... I started just volunteering to help herd cows. Let's go. Come on, babies. And uh, ranchers know a bargain, I guess, when they see one, because I'll work for free, as long as I get to ask them a lot of dumb questions. Ashley, before we get into the content of some of your episodes, I want to ask about your move to rural Washington. We hear a lot about people, and I think especially reporters, flocking from small towns to big cities. You did the opposite, though. Why did you do that? Well, I think that most of the jobs in media, as, as you know, are in cities. And that was my experience. I worked in, you know, big liberal coastal cities for my whole career. And I was in Seattle as their environment reporter covering climate change and natural resource management questions from the concrete jungle. And something felt really off about that to me after a while. Like I was missing uh, the context. And the more and more we see what's playing out with climate change, we can all see that a lot of the people that are on the front lines of this issue who are feeling the wildfires, who are feeling the drought, are rural people. And I felt like as a journalist, that 
I just wanted to explore that. That felt like foreign country to me. And after Trump was elected, I think there's just a real urban-rural divide in this country. I'm certainly not, not the first person to point that out. And so my personal journey into Sagebrush, I think, has helped me look at the journalism that I do differently by actually becoming a part of a, a rural community and moving cows and riding horses and um, just kind of, I don't know, helping out, being a neighbor. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the opposite of just dropping in, doing some reporting, and then jetting back home. Um, how did actually moving to a rural area change your perception of, of rural life and how you cover rural communities? I mean, I think there's some, like... 10,000 foot things I could say about certain assumptions that maybe city people have about country people in terms of their politics, maybe, or how they approach things, how they view the government. And once you live in a rural community, you can see just how much more nuance there is to that. And also maybe a little bit more of the context as to where those feelings come from and why people might be, say, skeptical of the federal government or overbearing regulations, as some perceive out here. Um, And I think that, you know, for one example, um, People really value self-reliance, being able to do things, solve your own problems on your own. You know, if your tractor breaks down in the middle of a field or gets stuck in the mud, like you're going to rely on your neighbors. The government's not coming to help you solve that problem. And I think that that's just one tiny, tiny example of the, the philosophy, I think, that I've encountered out here and how that foundation sort of, um, I think, colors a lot of the larger issues around how we regulate endangered species, or um, how even we respond to the pandemic in terms of how much help do people want. Um, You know, my mechanic buddy was like, I'm not taking any money from the government. That's not what I do. I'm not taking the the PPA. I'm not taking the, um, you know, the the government handouts because I, I never have and I never will. And there's a certain pride about that that, I don't know, I just didn't really, you just, I don't know, the longer I live out here, the more small examples I see. And I think cows are sort of a bit of a a lightning rod or they're a symbol of that division in the sense that when I lived in the city, you know, as I said, I was a vegetarian and I, I just thought, you know, and it's true, cows are a big part of the climate problem and methane emissions and greenhouse gas emissions from their production and their raising of cows. But once you see what they mean to people who make their living raising cattle and 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 beef, um, it's not so simple as just writing them off as the problem. Um, because you see how they bring people together in a community through shared knowledge, through shared hard work. And also the small smaller ranchers, the family-run farms that are hanging on, are not necessarily the bad actors when it comes to feedlots, you know, um, grain being shipped all over the country to feed to animals that's raised in the not, not the most sustainable ways. I mean, it's just... Yeah, the more I learned about the cattle industry, the more gray area I saw. And as I was kind of looking at how it's changing and who's bringing that change, lo and behold, a lot of the times it's women who are starting to say, hey, can we can we just do grass fed and grass finished? Can we can we stop, you know, overgrazing our land so much and move cattle around more frequently to prevent that from happening? Why do we need herbicides? Why do we need all these pesticides? Just these kinds of, you know, when we think of regenerative ag, those changes that are starting to happen. So that's where the series came from. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the last time we spoke, your you had a podcast that was um, all about the sage grouse and, you know, how protecting this um, endangered bird is also can be good for the environment, but it's a, a change in thinking. Now we're talking about changing thinking around cows <laughs> and other animals, other livestock. But your new podcast is centered around the question, can we raise animals in a way that is less harmful to the environment? And what really stands out is that 
still, so many of us in today's world don't think about it. We don't think about where the meat comes from. We go to the store, we bring home packages of meat, but the environmental impact of getting it to the table feels very remote. What made you want to try to answer this question? Well, um, I think like many people, if you drive, you know, you leave the city, you go out to the country for, you know, to go mountain biking or whatever on the weekends, and you see how cows can really trash the landscape if they're not managed properly, right? Like we all have seen overgrazed, you know, trampled creeks and riparian areas. Like this is not, you know, this was my experience too. Um, And I, but I also, I I really liked eating beef. And I, you know, if I'm being honest, like I missed steak when I was, when I was a vegetarian. And when I kind of started to meet people who make their living raising these animals and saw the tiny, like the tight margins, the year round constant work that goes into doing this. Um, it just became, I just wanted to understand better how that work, how, how it happens basically to go behind the scenes, to get to know ranchers and work with them closely. Like I help my you know neighbors herd their cows and do vaccinations and all of that, the brandings and all the stuff that brings the community together um, really just started to create, I think the beginnings of empathy for me and a little bit more hesitation around quick judgments um, as I think I maybe was, it was easier for me to do living in the city, but you're right, Aaron, most people go and they look at the price tag on the beef and they don't necessarily, you know, and, and myself as well, like we're not going to shell out necessarily double or triple um, what we would pay for cheap, you know, frank, frankly, um, poorly raised beef, industrial raised beef. Um, it's, it's a tough sell. But what I found in talking to all these ranchers is that there's a different story that many smaller ranchers are trying to tell, and it is about deep commitment to land and livestock, and it is not about growth at any cost. And it is not about extraction from the land for the sake of creating pounds of meat. It is about regenerating the land and managing their cows in such a way or other animals in such a way that it's not just taking, it's actually also giving. Right. And you mentioned the crucial role that women are playing in this idea of regenerative agriculture. In the trailer for the series, you uh, you heard this saying in your reporting, it may have been the Marlboro men and the John Waynes of the world who conquered and dominated the West, but it will be women who save it. Um, that was so powerful to me. How, how did you come to decide that the women of Western agriculture and ranching deserve their own podcast? Hmm. Well, uh, it started through knowing the ranch ranch women in my community and um, one old cowboy. I'll never forget when I was first kind of like playing with the idea of this series and not sure if I was going to pursue it. I was talking to this old guy and, and um, he was like, well, you know, if you want to get anything done in a ranching community, you talk to the ranchers' wives, like you talk to the wives. And I was like, but nobody ever records the ranchers' wives. Like they're always behind the scenes, you know, so rarely in, in that culture are is it, you know, the women are kind of the spokespeople for the family, right? It is the John Waynes. It is the Marlboro men that we gravitate towards. And, and as reporters, we often record. And I just kind of felt like, you know, oftentimes the women are the movers and the shakers. And especially when it comes to like new ideas being presented, um, it starts in this sort of like conversations around, I don't know, PTA meetings or water council, you know, irrigation ditch meetings where, you know, ideas start to get shared. And so that was what sparked it for me was just wanting to explore the the roles of women in ranching communities, but then to go a little bit further and start joining 
um, listservs and Facebook groups and starting to, you know, get connected with the Women in Ranching organization through Western Landowners Alliance and just starting to kind of see who was convening around this idea of regenerative ag. Um, how many young, how many people are applying for, say, internships on ranches across the West? There are programs where you can do that and getting in touch with those folks and just asking the simple question, well, how many men versus women are applying for these these internships? Well, guess what? It's more women now. There, there's, it's not a huge majority, but it's more than half are young women applying to be, you know, doing rancher internships. And so, you know, you start just kind of, I started gathering data and it's not that there's hard, hard and fast stats on, you know, women ranchers versus men ranchers. It's more um, just a lot of observation and a lot of networking and just asking a very, very simple question is like, what are women doing with in ranching now? And, and can I record that? And turns out they were happy to talk to me after some, you know, cajoling and, uh, you know, teasing myself about my, my poor cattle driving skills and stuff like that. And then if I was lucky, I got invited out to a ranch and I got to bring my saddle and my microphone. We've got to take just a short break from our conversation with Ashley Ahern. When we come back, we'll meet a rancher in Colorado who's working to protect open space for agriculture with the help of an unexpected ally. That's in just a moment. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm talking today with independent audio producer Ashley Ahern about her new podcast, Women's Work. She's been visiting ranches across the West to get to know the women who are reimagining the way we raise livestock and manage the land. One of the women you visited was Adrienne LaRue. Um, she raises pigs and cows on a 1,500-acre ranch that she leases from the Audubon Society in Colorado Springs. And she's using her pigs to improve the health of the land. Here's a clip from her. I'm a hard-charging I'm Most people who don't know me super well are like, wow, your energy is really intense. Um... But like with critters, I have so much compassion. People, I'm like very black and white. So how did you find out about Adrian? Through other ranchers and through a listserv I was on for women ranchers. Um, they, She is doing really cool things with her company, Corner, Corner Post Meats, and um, raising pigs in an area that was burned by wildfire. And it was really interesting to learn about how her pigs and the way pigs kind of root around in the dirt and especially after a fire where there's that really hard, there's often a very hardened like mineral crust of burned soil at the top. Well, pig snouts are the perfect rototillers to kind of get in there and churn that up and put fertilizer in as they're hanging out. And Adrian took me out and showed me, you know, her pigs and they were all just, you know, snoozing under a tree in the middle of the day in this huge pasture. And I, I kind of, you know, as somebody who'd done a lot of research on industrial ag and what we know about pig farmings and pig farming and lagoons of waste and you know the yes. concentrated lives the concentrated animal feeding operations the lives that these animals lead it was just completely different from that picture in my mind and i i wanted to record adrian talking about that and her philosophy and and so there is this really great clip of um when we come upon the pigs and they're napping we come over a rise and spot the pigs by their water trough in the shade of a bunch of pine trees so they're all just napping <laughs> I had never seen a real-life pig pile, but that's exactly what it was. Dozens of piggies curled up together, just snoozing. Little ones, big mamas, they were all different colors, reds and browns and spotty. If you want to walk through, we can totally walk through them, and they will all, like, jump up and run off like, oh, What? What is it? 
was having a good dream. Oh, there we go. Oh, there we go. <laughs> a couple of them woke up and curiously came over to where I was crouched with my microphone. That's Ewok. Which one's Ewok? The like carry one. Yes, the like bigger kind of crank. She's like one of the leads out. And and I should be clear, you know, the key, as Adrian said, and all these ranchers told me is. You don't leave the pigs in any one place for too long because they will trash the place, just like cows will trash the place if they're in one area. So she moves her pigs around constantly, and that is really the trick. And she's seen the benefits on her land. Can you tell us more about what Adrian is doing on her ranch? So the, what drew me to Adrian's ranch in particular is she is actually leasing the ranch from the Audubon Society. This is the Kiowa Creek Ranch. It's um, outside of Colorado Springs, and it's owned by the Audubon Society. And um, she's doing she's part of what's called the Conservation Ranching Program, where ranchers across the country are signing up with Audubon to adhere to certain management practices, to do annual bird counts, and essentially to keep open space in ag so that birds can have habitat. And Allison Holler and the executive director of the Rocky Mountain Division of Audubon Society told me the big threat to birds there in that part of the world is habitat loss, is all that development on the front range of Colorado, all those ranchettes that are going in where there used to be open space. Um, and so part of you know what, what Allison's up to and what Audubon is kind of focusing on in this part of the world is how do we work together with ranchers to protect bird habitat. So what Adrian's doing on her ranch is raising meat, but she's also seen... Um, very solid and recovering um, bird populations when they do the annual bird counts there. Goshawks have come back. And these are this, these very rare birds that hunt through forested areas. Um, and they're, they've hadn't been seen on the ranch in years. And now they're, they're back. We saw elk when I was out there. I mean, it was just very, very cool to see this chunk of land that is surrounded by development on the front range, still both fertile and, and hospitable to wildlife as well as Adrian's pigs and cows. Another of your episodes um, features wolves and the attempt to kind of coexist with wolves from a ranching family called the Elzingas. Can you talk a bit about that and their approach to living, you know, keeping the wolves at bay um, and kind of living with them? Sure. That was a really powerful recording experience for me. The Elzingas uh, invited me up into the backcountry with them. So we were miles from a battery or a power outlet or, you know, a bed. <laughs> and I was with them for several days just riding the range um, because I wanted to show listeners exactly what they're doing to keep their cows safe from wolves. They had lost thousands of dollars in cattle to wolf predation in the past. And as a result, they changed, instead of just letting their cows out on this huge grazing allotment they have with the Forest Service in central Idaho, they now ride the range with their cows day in and day out, which you could actually think about as the oldest way to raise cows, to manage your cattle. But very few ranchers have the resources to do that anymore. It's a much more hands-off approach. Um, but the Elzing has created this internship program, and there are seven sisters, <laughs> seven daughters in the family. So there, you know, several of them are regular riders on the range with their cows. And range riding is an idea that I think is catching hold in a lot of places, but it's tough to pull off. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of people management and many, many days in the saddle. And I experienced that firsthand. Um, but it was also really wonderful to see, you know, they're out. They basically keep their cows in a pen at night. They keep them out of riparian areas, you know, creeks and, and watersheds, wet areas, so that those, you know, a lot of um, trees can grow back, like willow and aspen that get trashed by cows. Beaver have come back. Sage grouse I saw on this land as we were riding through one of these creeks. And they've 
So by keeping their cows together and moving them, much like Adrienne LaRue does with her pigs, you know, just keeping them moving across the landscape, they're able to reduce the impact of those cows and they're seeing the benefit in terms of the wildlife recovery and the health of their land, but they haven't seen a drop off in terms of the growth of their cattle, like their cattle, they're making, they're making good money and they're able to tell the story of how they're doing it, which also brings a premium for the beef. People pay more for Alder Spring beef. Um, and I think that that's in part because of what, the, you know, the extra work that goes into it, but the extra money that they can charge for that that effort. The whole concept of wolf reintroduction here in Colorado was a pretty contentious issue. And there are certainly some growing pains happening right now. I'm wondering if there's anything that ag producers here or state wildlife officials can learn or take away from the experience of, of the Elzingas. You know, I would hesitate to say this is going to work for everyone. I do think there are certain elements that are incredibly valuable and applicable from what the Elzingas are doing. Um, but I, you know, there are wolves in the valley where I live and I ride with ranchers and I've gone out and seen carcasses of cows that were killed. And you see how it hits a rancher when he or she loses one of their cows. You know, they have these cows often for more than a decade. And it's not just as simple as, you know, pay the rancher a couple grand for the loss of the cow. It's how many generations of calves would that cow have given him when he loses her? What does that do to the herd when there are wolves terrorizing the animals, you know, hunting, chasing them as they're trying to graze? It, it, it results in a lot of um, other effects that is hard that are very hard to quantify especially you know frankly as a city journalist if I parachuted in on this story before I might not have really understood that until I saw it firsthand and so I'm very hesitant to say there's a silver bullet and what the Elzingas are doing is going to work for every rancher like wolves are a very real problem for ranchers and I want to acknowledge that and there are better ways to do this and there are new ideas to try and potentially partnerships to be hammered out with you know, governmental agencies that could help provide range riders. That's what they've tried in eastern Washington, where we have, you know, wolf wolf predation on livestock. And, you know, to varying degrees of success, but it doesn't mean that you give up. It means that we have to keep working toward that ability to have symbiosis with, you know, the wild animals in the areas where we want to raise cows. I think it's on ranchers and it's, an, it's on governmental officials before they say, okay, go shoot a bunch more wolves to try to figure out, you know, these kinds of pathways. And I saw it with the Elzingas. They're doing amazing work and it's, it's very hard work. So it was really wonderful to be able to bring that work to life and make it just bring listeners with me with their earbuds to see on the ground what goes into these changes and and that it's not as easy as sitting at a desk in the state capitol and saying, you know, with a brush of a pen, here's what we're going to do, you know, or here's how much a cow is worth to a rancher. Right. Well, what I absolutely love about your podcast is it really does bring the authentic sounds <laughs> of what you're doing and the authentic voices of the people and the women who are doing this. I am wondering how your experience actually living in a rural community, how did that impact the connections and, and the trust that you built with the women you spoke to? Well, there's a there's a phrase that I adore since moving to the country. You don't catch up with people. You visit, right? Have you heard that phrase used that way before? I'm, well, let's visit about this. Let's visit. Sure. And this is obvious to country people. They use this term all the time. I had never used it before I moved country. And I'll tell you, a visit 
to me invokes images of or evokes images of sitting on the tailgate of a pickup truck and having a beer after moving cows all day in the heat, working hard together, problem solving, fixing stuff that breaks, maybe getting bucked off a horse. But it's a conversation that has no definite start and no definite end. There is not a goal. It is not extractive. I mean, it's not about extracting information. It's about sharing information, conversing. Um, and it's not rushed. I mean, it's a it's just a different way of interacting. And I tried to bring that spirit of visiting because there is an art to it, to my interviewing techniques for this podcast. You know, that you don't just, in a visit, if you only ask somebody about themselves and you don't share a little bit about yourself and where you're coming from, it's weird, right? Like anybody would say that's weird. But when I was taught to do interviews or how I was taught to do interviews is it's not about you. It's don't put anything in about yourself in a conversation, right? Visiting with these ranchers, that wasn't going to fly, right? Just showing up with a microphone, sticking it in their, sticking it in their face, and asking them a bunch of questions. Some of them very personal and revealing. Um, it had to be an exchange, and so I was able to kind of use the the currency that I've earned through hard work in my community with ranchers to have even the vocabulary to ask certain kinds of questions and maybe shy away from others or be more sensitive of other questions. For example, um, I'll never forget it when I first moved here. I was just I was visiting with a rancher and I asked him, so how many, how many head of cattle do you, how many cows do you have? And he just looked at me and he's like, well, now that's like asking me how many dollars are in my bank account. A little faux pas. <laughs> For a cattle rancher, that's, that's really an invasive question. And I just didn't even think that that would be received that way. And so little learnings like that, I think, helped me just do a better job, frankly, as a storyteller parachuting in, because I was with these women, and spending multiple days with them in these extended visits. And I think it yielded a different kind of tape than what I've been able to get in the past. And I think it's, for me personally, more meaningful. It feels less of an extraction and more of a sharing. Well, just to wrap up, you touched on more women uh, seeming to kind of throw their hat in the ring for different opportunities in terms of ag in the West. What bigger trends did you notice in terms of those roles and opportunities for women uh, in ag in the West and maybe even beyond the West? Well, I don't think it's any accident that, you know, a recent issue of Western Horsemen was all about cowgirls, right? And I went to an event called Art of the Cowgirl in Arizona, and it was like hundreds of cowgirls hanging out, just doing their thing, learning how to rope better, working with cattle dogs, working, you know, learning about saddle fitting and colt starting and all these kind of very on the ground hard work that women have been doing on ranches for hundreds of years, let's be clear. But I think that they're starting to step into the spotlight and kind of own that a little bit more is my observation. And then when it comes to the ranching business, which is less glitzy than, you know, the cowgirling, barrel racing, rodeo life, uh, it's just hard work. And, and some of it is brute force, but some of it is softness. Some of it is deep attention to landscape. When we talk about regenerative ag, it's adaptive, it's flexible, it's not... Um, it's not as hard line or one size fits all. And if you want to really be successful on a ranch, you do learn and understand deeply that you adapt to whatever the seasons throw at you, whatever the drought throws at you, whatever the wolves throw at you. And I think women, maybe because we're not often in the dominant roles, are used to kind of adapting. We're used to sort of networking and connecting with others to get a job done if we can't do it by ourselves. And the other thing I think I would point out, and I am generalizing somewhat here, is that women are often information sharers in a community. When, you know, when somebody dies, who organizes the potlucks, who's on the PTA, who knows who's having a hard time or whose kid is struggling and needs a little bit of help on the weekends or tutoring or whatever. It's the women often fill these roles. And the same is true in ranching communities and especially around 
what I'm seeing in, the, in terms of trends in the industry is as more people want to buy sustainably raised beef, the people who are telling the stories on the ranches, who are reaching out to those customers, often in urban, you know, in, in the urban environment, who want to buy their beef from with a better story, the ones who are bridging that divide are often the women. They're the ones running the Instagram accounts. They're the ones, you know, running the the mailing orders and the, you know, people want to buy shares of beef. Well, guess who's running that? It's the wife of the rancher, not necessarily the rancher. And so, but oftentimes they're not the ones that step up to the mic to give you the soundbite when you come in to do a story. And so I think when I was observing that, I would say trend in storytelling, which is allowing ranchers to charge more for sustainably raised beef, that's the trick, um, it a lot of times is the women are the it's the women who are who are leading that charge and communicating that story and i think um what i observe at least in in my circles is that people are willing to pay more it's like dolphin safe tuna if there is a way that you can ensure or know more about where your food comes from and maybe even be connected to that story yourself by say visiting the ranch or getting in touch with that rancher directly on instagram or whatever there might be a way to support a different system of beef in this country that is an alternative to the industrial meat system we all kind of participate in today. Ashley Ahern is an independent audio producer and storyteller and creator of the new podcast series, Women's Work, from Boise State Public Radio. The newest episode featuring Adrian LaRue is available now. You'll find a link at our website, KUNC.org. Ashley, thank you so much for talking with me. Or should I say, thanks so much for visiting with me today. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. That's our show for today. Sean Corcoran is our executive producer. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.